As climate fuel disasters become the norm, understanding how emergency medical services operate in times of chaos is important. Today, I'm joined by Penguin Cheek, an EMS student, as we discuss medical services during wildfire events. Earth is our home, natural disasters and all, so let's talk about it. Welcome everyone to episode two of Talk About Earth. This is a podcast that I'm trying to hopefully actually really nail down by the end of this year, have good podcasting experience. (laughs) Um, Today's guest is Penguin Cheek. Um, He's been on Twitch. You've been on Twitch for like... Almost a year. No, a year. I've been on for a year now. Yeah. Um, So feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself, like what um, EMS is and like what you, your experience with it is so far. So I'm Penguin. I'm an EMS student. So I haven't had a whole lot of in-person experience, but essentially um, the emergency medical services are, is a system set in place to help people in need. Um, So if you're in a car accident, we'll come over there. We'll check you out, make sure you're okay. Just our main job is to help people. And then that also translates over to say that if there are like flood victims or fire victims, like going out and making sure that people are like alive and being taken care of, right? Yes. Cool. All right. <clears throat> so man, I'm like, I got to get better at like how to roll into things. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> All right. Um, so go ahead and um, where can we start? So. Wildfires. So today's topic with EMS is going to be uh, diving deep, like diving into how to help people that are victims of fires. So this is topic of discussion has been inspired because of what is going on in Australia right now. It's been going on for several months. Um, For those that are uninformed, Australia has been having insane amounts of wildfire all throughout uh, the continent. Uh, to the point where these fires are actually affecting the weather, causing lightning storms, fire nados, um, air pollution is also incredibly bad. And it's been putting a lot of strain on their local firefighting services because a lot of them are volunteers. And so because of everything that's been going on, we felt that it would be um, a good idea to talk about like what it, the process of helping people um, in emergency medical services in times of wide-scale, large disasters, um, like wildfires, would be, like, really informative. And just kind of cool, because, like, there's a lot of stuff that uh, Penguin was sharing in his notes I didn't even know about. So this is going to be cool. Yeah. Um, and for, like, a like little disclaimer, these are um, emergency services in the United States, because Penguin isn't a... EMS student in Australia. He's an EMS student here in the States. So fires that we'll be referencing will probably most likely be those um, that are happen often in California. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. So Penguin, you have a whole lot of notes here. I don't know I do. where you want to start, but feel free. You have the floor. Um, so I guess like we talked about the role already a little bit like making sure that people are safe but yeah could you go a little bit more into like the priorities of people that are like on the ground like they like for example the campfire that happened in california or 
the really or the paradise it's a paradise fire um so if you were to go onto the scene what would be the first thing that a ems person would have to do once they arrive on at the disaster site so our uh, main priority is our own personal safety. Mm-hmm. I am not a certified, I don't have my fire one certification, so I'm not certified to do mm-hmm. like even touch anything near the fire. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's fire's job to do that. Uh, in EMS, we want to stay safe. So we're kind of back away from the fire helping where we can mm-hmm. and fire can bring people out to us. Um, and when I think fire, my main concern is the uh, large-scale smoke inhalation. We mm-hmm. see all the time with fire victims on top of burn injuries, which is a whole other issue at hand, mm-hmm. is the smoke inhalation uh, causes, it causes a lot of um, damage and um, occlusions in your airway mm-hmm. and your ability to breathe. So um, let me look at my notes here real quick. I know it's like I have all this prepared and it's um, but so as far as treatment goes, the best treatment we can be giving any patient um, who has been exposed to any kind of fire incident Mm -hmm. is oxygen Um, Mm -hmm. due to the smoke inhalation. um, It inhibits your ability to um, have cellular respiration and allow oxygen to um, go between the capillaries and have proper oxygen exchange where carbon dioxide comes off the uh, red blood cell and oxygen gets loaded on with smoke inhalation. uh, Your alveoli and bronchioles and your entire airway gets covered in that carbon. Oh, so it acts kind of like as a... So it's a... Does it turn into like a sludge when like the ash gets into your lungs and like does that fill in um what's what's the word? I forget the medical term, but it's like you have like the little air pockets in your lungs, right? Yeah. So like the alveoli. Yeah, the alveoli. There we go. The alveoli. <laughs> <laughs> um so when you get inhaling all um the ash and smoke, so that will go into the alveoli and like just completely fill it up to make it so you, you get less oxygen in your lungs or? So essentially it's half happening pathophysiology, pathophysiologically is um, you have your air, which is uh, by nature like 25, 21% oxygen. And when you throw smoke into the mix and fire, um, the natural oxygen is lower and you're throwing in um basically this film of carbon that now covers your lungs and your lungs aren't dry. There, there, there is mucus in your lungs. So that carbon uh, gets caught on the mucus as it should. That's part of the purpose is to prevent um, things getting too deep. That shouldn't be. But what we see happen is carbon is kind of a really neat thing and it binds to everything. So, the normal mucus uh, thickens up a lot is what we see and um, can cause infections like pneumonia and overall just isn't good uh, to, for your respiratory system. So how would, what's the process of, or like, is there a way to like help people get that out of their lungs? Like does the oxygen supply 
um, that would be provided for them assist in that? Or is it something that they just have to go and hopefully they can hack it all up um, once they uh, get out of the area? Yeah, there's no way for us to like go in and scoop it out, um, which is why it's important for us to be able to give oxygen to patients who have been exposed to um, smoke inhalation. Got it. That's really spooky. Imagining having like just a sludge just hanging out in my lungs. Okay. That's <laughs> like it's like a little like you know, mucus monster that's trying to make it so you can't breathe. Dang. And I, I wouldn't expect it to be too uncommon if you've had a lot of smoke inhalation to develop an infection like pneumonia um in your lungs. Mm-hmm. Just because when the, those mucus secretions, when they thicken up, it, it becomes a lot harder to breathe. Because, um, I mean, your bronchioles are only so big. And now if you've added all this sludge, um, you have a lot more resistance getting um, oxygen in and out, which is what we see with a lot of asthmatics and people having bronchospasms. is their bronchioles are closed up, so oxygen isn't getting out of their alveoli anymore. Um, so what exactly is a bronchospasm? Is that, so like, is, do your lungs like seize or? Uh, bronchospasms are abnormal constrictions in the bronchioles. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm, okay. I'm trying to absorb all the medical terms. I know. <laughs> I apologize if I. It's all second nature for me. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for. So I would assume that people that have um, pre-existing conditions of like with their lungs, like asthma Mm -hmm. or people that are long-term smokers, they would be um, worse off in times of like dealing with smoke inhalation if they're in an area where a fire has been burning for a while, right? Like, Yeah. So what uh, we would expect from an asthmatic is um, this smoke inhalation and lack of oxygen in the air. Um, uh, can cause an asthma attack and exacerbate the problem dramatically. Um, and we also see it similar with uh, COPD patients who have COPD? Uh, chronic or um, chronic pul- obstructive pulmonary disease. There we go. Get oh, the words okay. in there. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is, there are a couple different types. Emphysema is reducing the surface area of your alveoli, so there isn't nearly as much cellular respiration happening as there could be. Um, And then we see chronic bronchitis, which is just chronic, thick secretions of the lungs. And then on top of it, you're adding um, an environment not nearly as saturated in O2 as it normally would be, plus excess smoke inhalation covering up your airway. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all bad. It's all bad. <laughs> so take care of your lungs if you can. <laughs> like, like, oh, my gosh. That's... Jeez. All right. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Just imagining, like, my lungs just not being able to like work properly and then having to deal with like smoke inhalation on top of that like that sounds so claustrophobic and terrifying um and so we have treating being able to get them with oxygen um Mm -hmm. so it's just a is it concentrated like pure o2 that are given like you know like with the nose piece or it's like the overhead like little so there are different ways we can administer uh, oxygen. In our ambulances, um, 
in the wee woo buses we have <laughs> the, um, the wee woo buses yeah uh we have large uh oxygen tanks um for long-term oxygen administration and then out in the field we have an o2 bag okay. um where we keep like the nasal cannula the things that go in your nose and then we have a thing called a rebreather mask which allows oxygen and oh, normal the, air to come in and out one, right? and then we yeah mm-hmm. and then we have a non-rebreather mask which is similar to the triangle one but um it has a one-way valve on the one side and a reservoir bag. So um, what happens is it makes it so you're breathing completely concentrated, 100% uh, O2. Nice. Have you ever been to an oxygen bar before? No. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when they were like a really big thing and coming out, but I never went. Yeah, um, there is one because that just reminded me like, man, pure O2. So um, there was one in San Francisco. And you get like a little like little nose piece breather, and mm-hmm. then you get to pick the scent of the oxygen. Yeah, and it's literally just pure O two. So I was like inhaling like grapes, and it's just like, whoa! <laughs> so I imagine um, maybe you guys could get like some flavored air in there. <laughs> oh man, it'd be like you're driving first class in the wee woo bus. What <laughs> yeah. scent do you want? You're like, I would love to inhale some watermelons today. (laughs) Um, So definitely smoke inhalation is a huge concern um, for fire victims, and especially those that are in areas where wildfires are thousands of acres um, wide, large, deep, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to describe the measurement of fires. Um, but then we also have the risk of burns. And I was seeing um, in your notes here that there's a different degree burn system, which I was completely unaware of. Yeah. Um, so if you'd like to talk about how that changed and then also um, what's like the risk of burns and how that would be treated. So the... Um old system was uh, burn degrees. Like you have your first degree burn, your second degree burn, third degree burn. And we kind of, we've done away with that system now, even though for the most part, the general public is still using it. In medicine, we've um, referred it to more as superficial partial thickness and full thickness burns. Um, And partial thickness burns is, it's nothing serious. Uh, You'll just see a lot of like irritation on the skin. Um, nothing tremendous, just super painful. Um, and then with second degree burns, what we start seeing is the burn starts going past the epidermis, which is your top layer of skin and more towards the dermis, um, where all the nerve endings are. And, um, you start losing your ability to retain, um, your internal hydration and you see a lot more evaporation through these burns and they're excruciatingly more painful. Um, and then with three degree burn or third degree or uh, full thickness burns, what we see is uh, the entire skin has been burned. So because of that, um, those victims generally aren't in a lot of a crap load of pain um, because th- all those nerve endings have been fried off at this point. Oh but now, yeah, it's it's gnarly. It's horrible. And then 
we'll go deeper in with it. But what we see is now you've lost your ability to retain heat. Um, you're seeing a lot of evaporation, a lot of lymphatic fluid leakage. Um, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, it sounds so gross. It sounds so gross. I yeah, promise no, I mean, it's, it's not. It's not that it sounds gross. I'm here like, oh my gosh. Okay. Because like I have a little burn <laughs> from like baking the other day. Oh, so I don't, no. I don't know like what degree or what is this so superficial, like it looks like superficial <laughs> heading to partial thickness yeah like it um, was, did it um, blister at all um you know, it just started scabbing like last night but i'm just here thinking yeah. like oh my gosh getting like a full like um like i'm here with my own little like oven sheet baking <laughs> burn imagining like it going all the way down like okay yeah. like i shouldn't be laughing but like <laughs> <laughs> no it just looks like a superficial burn nothing nothing uh crazy but burns can continue even after you've removed a patient from the heat source oh wait seriously um, mm -hmm. so uh we call it um being exposed to a lot of heat like that we call it being hyperthermic mm. hyper as in like over or excess um they've been exposed to a lot of heat and what can happen is the skin actually retains some of that heat. So instead of being at your normal skin temperature, uh, now you have this retained heat and it keeps cooking, so to speak. Oh. So you can see a first degree burn or a superficial burn, um, head into a second degree partial thickness burn and so forth, depending on the scale of the burn and the heat and whatnot. That's terrifying. So how do you prevent it? Or are there ways to prevent it from continuing to get worse? Like, is that where you would be putting, um, I mean, do you put ice on that or how do you like remove the heat? So it's a super hit miss topic, depending on who you speak with. Okay. Um, for me personally, um, it's uh, feeling the patient. Um, feeling their skin temperature, feeling how hot they are. Um, if they're extra hot, um, if you, that's kind of the point, I would start thinking about um, a damp occlusive dressing. And the occlusiveness um, keyword there is to um, prevent any kind of infection, stop um, any extra exposure to the um, air that could get the uh, wound infected. Um, so the, and the dampness helps, uh, cool down the patient, but if the burn is big enough, um, we, I would probably err away from doing that because now they've lost their ability to retain heat and they're losing heat and they're, uh, you're seeing a lot of evaporation of their internal hydration throughout, through that burn to where I'd be more worried about just getting that. Uh, that burn wound occluded and then to a burn center. Wow. Okay. So it's like you said, really hit or miss. Just got to see what's the best. Yeah. Thing. A lot of it also just depends on the burn, like a cooking sheet burn. That's you would just, there's not a lot you can do for that. Just let it kind of do its thing. But oh, yeah. Put some Neosporin on it, ran it under oh, yeah. water. Like, um, and so like, kind of, is it common for people to like go into shock when they reach um, what's what's the word like um, kind of a partial to a full thickness burn? Is that something 
Definitely. Um, so what we can see is any kind of large percentage of burn on your body. You're losing your ability to retain heat. You're losing fluid and hydration. So, and you're at an increased risk for infection. Um, so we don't necessarily see it because we just transport them to a burn center if they're that bad. But what can happen is they can get septic shock and um, their body is losing um, water. So they're getting dehydrated, but most mostly it's they're get they're susceptible to infection and they get septic shock and their blood pressure tanks and it's really hard to prevent and come back from. Wow. <laughs> so like what if they reach the point of going into um you said septic shock. Yeah. Like um, do you know, like, if they, you know, get to the burn center, like, the chances of really recovering for something like that? Do you have to be, like, on a whole lot of machines? Um, is that something that... So, that depends a lot on the case you have, or the patient, and what kind of burns they have, because we talked about this a little bit, but uh, occlusion of the airway... Um, from smoke inhalation and whatnot, which would possibly require um, some intervention. And we can put in what's called a nasal pharynx um, airway, an NPA or an oral pharynx air airway, OPA, depending on um, uh, the scale that they're at, um, their trauma score scale they're at, and how conscious they are. Um, we can intervene manually. Um, which would require um, BVM, or once they got to the hospital, they would probably have an endotracheal put in, which is a lower airway breathing device. Oh, that's um, where they, um, like, they put it, like, into, like, your throat, right? Uh, that's a tracheotomy or tracheostomy is where okay. they put it. Um, and endotracheal is where they go uh, through your mouth and down into your lower respiratory. Oh, okay. So if their internals are burned really bad and they're not, super conscious um the hospital will do that but we can if the patient needs it we can intervene with manual bag valve mask and an adjunct and then um that's kind of as far as it goes for machines really other than uh intravenous drugs and whatnot um the hospital or the paramedic will put them on fluids which would require um an iv Got it. Got it. Um, okay. So we got lungs and got burns. Let's see. So glad having notes up on the side and being able to stream this. Cause it's like, it's so easy to edit things. <laughs> Let's see. I got personal safety. Um, oh, um, what I wanted to, ask you too. So like, um, we were talking a little bit about it offline, but with fires becoming more like worse, um, as each year goes by, uh, from a variety of causes, definitely with more dryness due to change in climate and weather mm -hmm. systems. Um, in addition on top of, you know, poor forest management as well. I'm not doing proper controlled burns. So that way these fires can't get to the point that they 
um, have been. Um, with that in mind, do you expect that as, you know, like wildfire seasons become uh, more normal and frequent, that this is going to be putting a strain on um, EMS services? Uh, for sure. So um, really what happens is we classify it as an MCI, mass casualty event, which is any time you have more patients than you have EMS personnel, which being an MCI event, um, we can call in for additional resources and divert um, other EMS personnel from other places. Um, and work uh, jointly and cooperatively to make sure we're getting everybody the help they need. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you know numbers, but um, I'll ask anyway, and it's okay if mm -hmm. you don't know. <laughs> like, so, but on average, like how many people, so in comparison, so if you have a normal event, like there is just a we'll say a fire the size of a park and like it was in a controlled area of a neighborhood um, around how many people would you think would be deployed for there? And then if you were to take something on the scale of like Los Angeles burning, mm -hmm. um, trying to think of like acreage for massive fires, um, like the, I'm assuming for the Los Angeles one, you would need to call in a lot of different departments for sure. Um, but on mm -hmm. average, like how many people like per unit uh, makes it out to these things? Like what consists of like one deployment of uh, people? Uh, that really, that really depends on uh, the area and the protocols. Generally out here, what you have is a lot of two per two or three personnel ambulances. Hmm. Um Generally, you have an EMT who's just driving the bus and then a paramedic who can actually work with the patient. Um, if you get a three personnel ambulance, you're pretty well set because you have a lot of hands. And then as far as scale of ambulances depends on your area, your funding, how many stations they have, uh, how many employees they have. Okay, this just popped in um, the top of my head mentioning funding. Um, how mm -hmm. I'm going to sound like a total like uneducated You're person fine. here. You're but fine. How, how is EMS funded? Is that through um, like our public taxes? So is that federal? Is that private? Or is it a mix? It's a mix. So um, like out here, we have. Um, Apex Ambulance, which is a private ambulance company. Um, but then we also have um, fire EMS fire districts, like where I live in the city I, I'm in. We have an EMS fire system, and we have a couple stations. Okay, so is there any like difference in quality of care that you know of in comparison to, like, the private industry and the federal uh, fire service. I should mention uh, the funding as far as um, your city um, 
EMS fire or anything of the sort goes. That heavily depends on uh, your city, um, what kind of county you live in, like whether it's Jefferson County, Orange County, Adams County. The funding can come from there. None of it's really on a federal level. It's all usually state, city, um, county level. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, but as far as quality of care goes, the the rule of thumb is supposed to be that everyone gets the best care you can give. But that can be limited by um, the funding <coughs> that um, the units get, right? So I, um, as something that has been, I mean, something that was talked about in the debate, the uh, debates last night in terms of um, healthcare and people having access to resources in times of need and also like in times of disaster. Mm -hmm. So um, has it been talked about if there's a huge um, like disparity between say, um, again, just using Los Angeles as an example, you have Santa Monica, which is like, you know, apartments like $4,000 a month, like super, mm -hmm like ritzy ditzy rich person area um you know hollywood and then if you were to go uh, more inland to like riverside or even out to barstow where there's mm -hmm. not it's not as nice um like would that really affect the type of care that you could be getting um in times of a disaster with those units this is my personal opinion on this matter, but it does change. Out here, you see a lot of, like in Denver, we you see a lot of homeless people, um, and um, you'll see a lot of people just call them bullshit calls. Like, oh, this person just needed a warm bed for the night, or it's just another drunk. Um, when you get called to certain areas or you see um, a certain type of looking person and the quality of care does get dictated at that point because um, they're bored or lazy or whatnot. And the quality of care can change based on that. Um, and I, I'm saddened that that's the truth, but I know uh, for a fact, I've heard horror stories about Aurora fire and them inadvertently killing patients because of it because they're just another drunk not realizing um it's a diabetic with a low bgl or something of the sort wow y'all need to get your shit together <laughs> we're lazy like what like lunch is in like an hour i hope we don't get any calls if we do we should just drop them off and not do anything about it because I'm, I'm really thinking about that food truck around the corner what wow, is that seriously like conversations that people have that's oh my gosh that's that's like stereotype like oh my god it's a red game or a blue game type of it's like it's lunch in an hour man that that breaks my heart because it's like just understanding like so from like the environmental perspective and seeing <clears throat> mm -hmm. um the scale of disasters that are uh, being predicted and I mean, just looking out Australia, for example, it's mm -hmm. like imagining that there are people, um, although I would hope that in times of great crisis, like the good would come out in most people, um, but that it wouldn't be a bias of, oh, well, we need to go to like the rich neighborhood first, even though the fire is currently engulfing the 
more impoverished neighborhoods and they need our help immediately. Um, I, I really, probably me being an optimist, but I'm hoping that the best comes out in people uh, when there's times of great crisis. Um, so I guess that's a, like something that we just, you know, put good vibes out into the universe, pray about yeah. it, hope that when uh, shit hits the fan, all the good things um, that make yeah. us human come out, you know. And I, d- I do want to mention that uh, we don't really get to choose where we're de- uh, deployed at, dispatch, or um, if it's a large-scale event like Australia, we have the National Incident Management System. Oh, um, can you um, go into detail about that? So the National Incident Management System, which is uh, basically the incident command system on a larger scale, um, breaks down... Um, these different like districts and sectors of um, how to manage something. So you have um, your main head honcho of the incident, and then it breaks down into um, triage and staging and transport and whatnot. And that really comes down to transport where it's um, and triage where it's uh, getting patients out and where they need need to be or um i guess getting them out would fall more and under extrication but um it falls down a little more broken into that and um the instant commander um whoever's in charge of allocating those resources depending on the scale of the incident um kind of dictates how that'll all play out got it okay so it is that just like one well, I would assume it'd be like a, a little team of people, depending on the um, severity mm-hmm. or like this or the scale. I was like, "What's that? The word? It starts with S. The scale <laughs> um, <laughs> of the crisis that's going on." Oh no! <laughs> um. Well, let's see. Going through. I mean, we can like just go ahead and clip this part out of the actual audio of the podcast. Hi, mm-hmm. Pixie. Thanks for the raid. <laughs> Hello. I'm so sorry that your your bot got timed out. I um I had a couple or that your message got. I had a couple of um, trolls um, a while ago, so I was like fiddling with my settings with stream elements and was like, okay, like we'll change like link settings and change like um, caps and all that stuff. You know, good. Um, so this is Penguin. Um, he is an EMS student, and uh, we're um, kind of reaching. I'm looking down the notes, kind of reaching the end of what we had like mm-hmm. planned to talk about. So then we'll be taking questions about um, EM. So um, emergency medical services, mm-hmm. and this is for the Talk About Earth podcast that I'm working on. Our first episode was last week with New Noise Works to talk about environmental activism and game development, and that'll be, should be on Spotify soon. I sent the audio over to um, my sound engineer friend, and now this is episode two. And so um, the TLDR of what we've done so far for those who are coming in from Pixie Stream is um, how EMS works in times of like a crisis, kind of diving into a bit of like the system and the medical terminology the kinds of things that could happen. So, yeah, that, and that's all of Penguin's info right there. All right, and then I'll just say, yeah, Lewis, you can chop all of that out. <laughs> 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 he, he 
he's a sound person. He knows what to Thanks, do. Thanks, Lewis. Yes. We love you, Lewis. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for making us sound good. <laughs> um Okay, so we talked non urgent yeah. urgent. Oh, oh, we didn't talk oh. about um MCIs. Uh MCIs are the mass casualty events. Okay. Oh, so that's yeah. like the scale of how bad it is, right? Yeah, I mean, we didn't really t- touch or go too deep on the non-urgent, urgent, and emergent moves. Mm-hmm. Um, so in EMS, uh, we classify like the urge to move the patient versus, we call it load and go versus stay and play. Um, and this uh, non-urgent, urgent emergent system falls into place similar to a fire which is also in a lot of cases like you have it at an apartment complex it's now considered an mci um what happens is um it basically dictates uh how we move the patient like um you have um a patient just a man down you don't really know you just have a person laid down, but you cannot like access their airway and they're not breathing. We would call that an urgent airway, which al- would allow us to bypass, um, not really bypass, but um, kind of get sloppy a little bit because we need to move the patient so we can get access to their airway and help them breathe. Okay. Um, so that's basically how we break down the non-emergent, non-urgent, urgent, emergent setting is how how badly we need to move the patient so we can help them. Got it. Okay. So in a case of fire, it's an MCI though. So we, we do have grounds um, on top of keeping on top of our own personal safety to uh, leave patients or get really sloppy and get them out very quickly. Got it. Okay. I think... We talked quickly. (laughs) That's good, though. I was, like, so worried that it would turn into, like, Mm -hmm. a super long, like, oh, no. Like, how am I going to make this fit? Yeah, yeah, so for those, I guess we'll open um, the chat up now for questions. If anyone has any questions Mm -hmm. at all for Penguin um, regarding EMS and wildfire services, um, go for it. Otherwise, I'll just kick him off and we'll go play games. <laughs> wow. I see. I see how this. Bah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ryder Grobus is asking, is your penguin hat comfy? It is so comfy. I love this hat. And it is covering up the mess that is under the hat. And it's amazing. <laughs> An early bedhead today. Oh, like I... <laughs> It's not too bad. Oh, the hat fixed it. I guess. (laughs) Yeah, dude, that's not too bad. Like, my hair is so matted, like, Uh, today, but who cares? The front only needs to look good. (laughs) I know. Who cares about the back? I don't even want to look at the back. Mm -hmm. That could be a whole nother mess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there is something else though, um, with, especially with the Australian fires, um, there is, um, 
I forget what the actual title is, but it's basically emergency system personnel who go anywhere. Like um, there's a job in fire where basically you can be a fireman that goes wherever you're needed. So like when the California fires start up, um, those floater firemen, so to speak, get sent to California to help and then so on and so forth. Um, I'm not 100% sure if we deployed any of those people to Australia or not. Um, but. Idaho sent a unit, and I think California also sent a couple of people. But that's I haven't yeah. heard a whole lot about it, though. Um, Ryder is also, um, also asking, how hard is it to study EMS? Oof. It's... Like, I have the book right here. It is a stupid thick book and you have to memorize all of it and you have to know it um so it's it's pretty rough and the time frame uh you have to learn it is super small super tight uh you have four months to learn everything that's in this book which includes like burn injury soft tissue uh trauma uh, medical emergencies like those copd asthmatic emphysema um chf patients um, and how we can take care of those people on top of like communications and differential diagnoses. And it's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty hard, but it is very enjoyable. So for anyone who would want to like get into EMS, uh, what would you like two things you'd recommend to them? What do you mean by recommend? Um, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, so if, if I were to come up okay. to you and be like, I want to go into EMS, like what, like two pieces of advice, uh, would you give? Depending on how far you take it. And basically, uh, EMT is the entry is the entrance to EMS. You get paid minimum wage. So you cannot be doing this for the money, similar to streaming. You have to be doing this because you want to help people. Got it. If you, if you can't do that baseline, nothing else matters. If you don't care about helping people and just seems like an easy six-month away to get a cert certification and a job, it won't really go that way. And then we have uh, Kumar asking, what's generally the priority of EMS? So, like, for example, there's a child, man, woman, or elderly. Like, who gets top priority if um, you have a case mm -hmm. where, like, you have um, that group of people okay. uh, wounded? Who would you prioritize? So, if I had all those cases of wounded people, it's not definitely mass casualty incident because it's more than what one ambulance can take care of, whether we have two or three people. So, what it comes down to when it's an MCI, we do triage and uh, we prioritize patients zero to four, or um, also more commonly known as um, green, yellow, red, and black. So, priority comes down to um, who is actually helpable and how, how we can manipulate and stretch our resources, who needs the most help, who's okay to do stay and play versus load and go. And then uh, on top of transport time and how quickly we can get resources to us, um, that all kind of goes into, but there's no bias as far as whether um, it's an infant, pediatric, geriatric, or 
um, regular, normal uh, adult patient. How? Oh, so you said it's it's six months to get certified. Roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started late August. I would have actually had my certification by the end of December after you go through the class and you get um, all your national registry, um, which is the national standard uh, testing for psychomotor, which is like where you actually act out like on a dummy, how you would do a situation and whatnot. And then the written multiple choice, 120 question sheet. That's a lot of questions. (laughs) It is a lot of questions. And it's Um, an adaptive test for EMTs too. So you've got to know your stuff before you take it. Flashcards, flashcards, flashcards. So many flashcards. Like, <laughs> got to have that pharmacology memorized. Like, mm-hmm. albuterol, you got to have 2.5 milligrams and 3 cc's. And you have to know your indications, your contraindications. You can give up to three doses with that. With five minutes spacing between, you have to know it. Mm-hmm. Dang, good. You need a brain of steel. <laughs> um. Ryder is asking, is EMS for everyone? Why or why not? EMS is not for everyone. We see a lot of traumatic stuff, and it's why um, a lot of more older um, EMS employees are uh, killing themselves now. We see a lot of traumatic stuff. Wait, um, that's, like, actually a problem? Like, is it from, like, it's like, like, PTSD or... It's a lot of things. So we have uh, delayed stress reactions, which is basically PTSD, acute stress reactions, and just chronically seeing a lot of bad stuff. And it, it makes you just really wonder what, why, why this world is a horrible place. And at least a handful every day. But on top of that, it's just you need to go in with a mindset. I want to help people. You're not doing I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for this patient. My focus is this person right now. And um, in Aurora Fire, we see a lot of half-assed personnel or they see I haven't been over there yet, but I've heard horror stories. Um, They get really lazy and you cannot be lazy. You have to be sharp. When you go in, you have to know I'm here for 12 or 24 hours, depending on um, your protocols and whatnot and how it's set up. But you have to go in knowing I am at work. My priority is helping people. And for some people, they can't do that. Um, For some people, it's just you see all this stuff and you see blood and some people can't do blood. And some people, you see a lot of vomit. Some people can't do vomit. Um, some people hate protocols or scope of practice. So it definitely takes a special type of person. But personally, I think it's really great to get into it because you get to work with a lot of, a lot of different people, um, with all kind of financial and racial and whatnot kinds of backgrounds. And you get to meet a lot of really cool people and you get to help a lot of really cool people. I think we will close the Q&A and wrap this up. Thank you so much for being my second official guest, Penguin. I oh, yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> like, I'm sorry if it was a bit rough. Like, <laughs> Oh, no. Look at the hang of it.
Mm-hmm. I might not, but you will. You can find Penguin Cheek on Twitter and in the description of this episode. A huge thank you to Lewis from Fieldstone Studios for being our amazing audio guy and to our fabulous $5 Patreon supporters, Grant, Ken, and Wyatt. See you next time for more conversations about our world.